0: Welcome to episode 13 of Learn Me Right. Today we're speaking with Dr. Megan Prichter from the University of Melbourne. Thank you so much for being here to speak with us today.
1: Hi, glad to be here.
0: Are you able to first of all tell us a little bit about your current role and where you're
1: working? Sure. So I'm a senior lecturer at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne um, and my focus is on health technology law. So I work across a range of different Uh, areas related to that topic, and I also collaborate with another centre at the university called the Centre for Digital Transformation of Health.
2: Wow. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to have you. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Sure. What are your pronouns? I'm a she. Thank you. And what is the highlight of your year so far?
1: Well, I think probably it came at the end of last year um, and being able to go to the Australasian Association of Bioethics and Health Law Conference for the first time in a number of years and to meet you both there. That was so sweet.
2: Thank you. That was an excellent conference. It was... So nice to meet you there and it was a really good conference in general.
1: It really was. There was such a rich body of work and um, a lot of health law people there to balance out the bioethics people. So it was really, (laughs) really great fun event. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Um, what is your coffee order or
1: hot drink order? Oh, skinny cappuccino. And I was just thinking this morning that I do like a skinny cappuccino with the cinnamon on top like they do in New Zealand as opposed to the chocolate on top. But you don't get a choice here. But in New Zealand they say, would you like cinnamon or chocolate? And I always go the cinnamon.
2: Even know you could have cinnamon on a yeah. cappuccino instead yeah mm-hmm. wow no I will remember this for the yep.
1: future <laughs> New Zealand better in every way <laughs>
2: we'll cut that out <laughs> um, finally um what would you sing
1: at karaoke um so you know interestingly my background is actually music and my phd was in music history not in law and i used to sing in a duo and i one of my favourite songs used to be dancing queen so i think that's a pretty good number for karaoke or anything ever
2: i, I think that is the most appropriate response we've ever had <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent thank you so much
1: you're welcome
2: so
0: moving to the more substantive part of the podcast. Our first question is, what is your current research problem or topic that you're investigating?
1: So the topic that I'd like to talk to you about today is that of clinical decision support software and its use in clinical care in in Australia. So um, clinical decision support systems have been around for about 30 years now, really ever since the development of algorithms and computers. And um, They've been increasingly refined, and they're very disparate types of software and algorithms that are used in the clinic to guide doctors on delivering high-quality patient care. So um, they're integrated with electronic medical record systems, so they apply decision rules to patient data to spit our recommendations that might be recommendations for prescribing um, for um, ordering tests or imaging for um, following up patients for for diagnosing them or a range of different health activities I suppose and the thing that I'm really interested in having worked with a project at the university which was has developed a clinical decision support tool for chronic disease um, called future health today um, is what is the implications of that in a legal sense what legal risks does the use of these systems generate um, what remedies are available if the systems inadvertently cause harm and um, And one particularly interesting angle, I think, is what do we do when the systems are actually fraudulently designed? And I'd like to talk about that um, with a US example later in this discussion.
2: Wow, that's um, that's so interesting because it's so exciting to have technologies to come around and help us to actually, um, you know, pick up patterns that doctors might not necessarily see, because they have access to so much more data um, and situations that the doctor necessarily hasn't seen before. But you're so right; it's so concerning. Like usually, if something goes wrong, it's either the, it might be the doctor's fault or the hospital's fault. But if it's neither of those people or institutions, then you can't sue a computer. <laughs> no,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so um, there's a, a lot of reliance that doctors are being encouraged to place on on software, you know, um, most most hospitals now have electronic systems and electronic patient um, record systems and different bits of software that integrate with those systems and you know we all know of the pressures the healthcare systems under Um, doctors are very time poor they have to make rapid fire decisions that really critically impact on patients lives and so you know On paper, it's a good idea on the face of it. It's a great idea to have software that that makes their jobs easier, that makes it easier for them to pick up patterns, to notice when things are going wrong, um, to make sure that they are following current guidelines for prescribing or other types of treatment. Um, So it's no surprise that these systems have been developed it does really raise a lot of questions about the obligations on doctors to use them, um, the risks that might ensue if they disagree with the software recommendation um, or or ignore it, which happens in a lot of cases. Um, And then, you know, what happens if if the algorithm isn't quite right or fit for purpose or is outdated and the doctor doesn't realise that and follows it anyway and the patient suffers harm?
2: So um, we saw that there was that case in the United States um, that settled for uh, at least $145 million, I think it was, against a particular company and then the other conspirator, or consp- is that the word? Conspiracy? Conspiracy? Inspir- conspir- yes. <laughs> <laughs> that word. That one, um, they were sued for over a billion dollars. So we were wondering if you could chat to us about um, like fraud in the and the relationship that has with um, clinical decision support software.
1: Sure. So this was a really interesting case in the U.S. Um, that I have to thank my, my colleague in computer science, Daniel Capuro, for alerting me to, um, called Practice Fusion. So in 2020, um, the Practice Fusion and its parent company, Allscript, settled with the U.S. government um, for a very substantial fine, as you said, for fraudulent behaviour in the design of their um, clinical decision support software that was integrated with their electronic medical record system. So, Practice Fusion is a company in the U.S. that designs electronic medical record systems, and it emerged that um, they'd been receiving kickbacks of. A million dollars from famous um, opioid company Purdue Pharma, um, which was you know, shown to be behind the US opioid epidemic to a large extent, um, to influence the design of clinical decision support software, which was built into that electronic medical record. So the way it worked was that um, doctors were being encouraged to use this clinical decision support software, which was about managing patient pain and um, there are a number of evidence-based treatments for chronic pain like exercise, um, cognitive behavioural therapy and non-opioid analgesics but um, this payment meant that opioids were put into the system as a as on the same footing as those other evidence-based recommendations. And doctors using the system had no way of telling that this was actually an advertisement or a funded um, recommendation rather than an evidence-based one. And so we know that that alert to doctors to recommending opioid prescribing fired millions and millions of times. We don't know how many prescriptions resulted from that, but it's reasonable to assume that it was millions. and obviously causing really significant harm to the people on the receiving end who might have become addicted to those medications. So this um, kind of behaviour we know is not just by Purdue Pharma. Um, there were a number of other instances of similar payments for fraudulent design of clinical decision support mentioned in, the, um, in those government, um, mater- government case materials but those companies weren't named. Um, And so, you know, um, Practice Fusion had to pay a lot of money and so did Purdue Pharma um, as fines for that behaviour. What I'm really interested in is how would we know if the similar behaviour was happening in Australia? There's actually no um, transparency around funding to... um, clinical decision support software developers um, there's no way that I've been able to identify where we would know if pharmaceutical companies were funding the design and influencing the design of those those tools and so I think you know that's a really interesting area I'd like to look into more there is an organisation called Medicines Australia, which is like an umbrella organisation for the pharmaceutical industry here, that does voluntarily publish um, payments, a number of different types of payments that pharmaceutical companies make, for instance, to consumer organisations, um, or for health professional training, but it doesn't it doesn't disclose the payments to software developers, and I think that would be kind of an easy. Um, way of of getting some transparency and getting shining some light on this problem
0: that's really interesting and also extremely concerning it is quite
1: concerning and I'm not suggesting you know I'm not aware of any egregious behavior in Australia by pharmaceutical companies who are you know trying to do the dirty here but I think it would be given what's happened in the U.S. it would be good to have a bit more transparency
0: I do just have One more question, if that's all right, on um, how this works in practice. So, there's obviously fraudulent behaviour where people are actively maybe influencing the information that goes in. But I imagine that there's just such a broad range of new information that comes out all the time about what might be good or evidence based. And then that's really hard to reflect in a clinical decision making system like that. I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, because I think that's raising one of the articles that you sent us about how we actually translate all of that information that comes out and funnel that, uh, keep it up to date into those systems.
1: Sure, that's a really important issue. So um, it's, it's the case that clinical decision support software ought to be built on um, good clinical practice guidelines. They might be um, national or international guidelines about you know, how doctors should um, manage people with a chronic particular chronic illness for instance and there are a number of you know peak bodies that issue those guidelines and and update them regularly Um, it's a real it's a really important issue of how changes to guidelines get into the software and um, I've been speaking to you know clinicians who are in hospitals who kind of have um, an interest in developing their own tools within their medical record system. So essentially, they can be built on site. Software tools can be built on site by clinician users, um, as well as by external companies. And people tend to get very enthusiastic about the idea of a new algorithm to solve a particular clinical problem. But I think there is less attention paid to how we're going to keep that up to date over time how we're going to reflect changes how we're going to make sure that in incorporating new guidelines that we don't break something in the meantime and you know there is a there's a large body of evidence that shows that clinical decision support tools have generally beneficial effects on a range of important outcomes, both in terms of clinician behaviour and in terms of patient outcomes. They generally do a good job in improving health, which is great. There's been less attention paid in the research to the potential harms of, um, the potential harms of clinical decision support, not because of any fraud, but just because the system doesn't quite work In the best possible way that it was designed to. So sometimes those errors are baked in at the start. Um, There might be, you know, just a coding error or a misinterpretation in the way that the system is designed. And I can speak more about one of those instances. There's also problems in terms of the interface. So particularly alert fatigue is a big problem. Um, As I said before, doctors are so busy and they don't necessarily welcome the the idea of a lot of pop-up alerts on their screen. And and, you know, we know ourselves when we get pop-up reminders, we just go, oh, can't be bothered. I'll look at that later, or whatever, and we dismiss them. So we know that alerts in clinical decision support are dismissed between fifty and ninety-five percent of times. And so, um, so you know, poor interface design that that over alerts people actually can lead to other harms because it might mean okay, we go dismiss, 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 but in doing so, we actually dismiss one that would have otherwise. Solved a major problem.
2: I have a question, um, one more if we can. Um, well, we we do know that doctors aren't a hundred percent accurate all of the time. So there seems to be a general ethical acceptability around risk of harm when it comes to humans. Is there in the literature or that you know of an acceptable risk? Um, that you know we can accept as society that yes, we know it's not going to be perfect. Um. Have you found that to be anywhere? Or is there an expectation that these systems should be perfect because they are machine-based?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. It's quite unclear. I think um, we've got no case law that I'm aware of on medical software, really. Um, There's case law on other types of software, and there is an acceptance that a certain level of... um, error or risk is acceptable. And I I think that really brings us to an important point here, which is we're talking about tools that are decision support. They're not decision making. And so they are always designed for the doctor to be or the other clinician to be the arbiter, the the judge of whether they act on on a recommendation or they choose not to act on a recommendation. And so you know, something that has really emerged through my work is this interesting point that doctors are being encouraged to use these systems, hospitals and other practice, and you know, clinical practices are buying and implementing these systems. The government in Australia has recommended in the recent Medicare um, review that um, these systems are used particularly for imaging orders to make doctors comply with recommendations about when they should be ordering um, you know, x-rays and so on. So There's a lot of pressure to use them, and yet it's the doctor who still has to make the decision. And so... You're potentially introducing a system that increases the risk to the doctor of making a bad decision if the system is not, not really well designed, well tested and kept up to date.
2: Is it, one more question, <laughs> is, it, is there a chance though that it's almost kind of like, if, if it's decision support, it's almost like two brains are better than one? Do you think that there's a possibility that the doctors can pick up on the mistakes of the machine, but then the machines can also pick up on mistakes that are being made in general practice?
1: Yeah, yeah, in general practice, in all kinds of clinical care. So as I said, there's, there is good evidence that it does improve care that is concordant with guidelines. It does help prevent medical errors um, as, a, as a general rule. Uh, but I think it's that interesting issue about trust and reliance. So, if they work well most of the time, then are clinicians actually alive to the possibility that there might be errors in there that they need to be aware of? There's one particularly interesting case in the US that was written up um, as an adverse event of uh, clinical decision support where Um, particular medications were coded in certain ways and they were coded in a slightly incorrect way that meant that a doctor had actually double prescribed um, the same medication and the patient got really ill as a consequence. So it wasn't necessarily obvious to the doctor that they had done that until, you know, it was brought to their attention. But I think the point is, you know, these systems are becoming ubiquitous is there enough attention paid to the potential risk? Are we really, are, are clinicians really alive to the fact that, you know, so much is going on in the system behind the scenes and there might be things that are the suboptimal?
0: Mm-hmm. So in terms of our next question, we would love to hear your thoughts about some solutions to these issues that you've raised from a government or broader regulatory perspective and I think that there's probably kind of two domains that we've talked about. One is about sort of the, de- the design of the systems and how information gets inputted, whether that's fraudulent or whether that's just that there's an information overload and the other side which is how clinicians actually use these systems to support their decision making. So love to hear your thoughts about that. I know it's a big big question. It <laughs> is a big
1: question. That is a big question. Um, so you know one thing that I think Um, needs further attention and I think the government is paying further attention to is kind of the need for standard setting in this space and the RACGP has called for a body to be set up to oversee clinical decision support the situation um, with the Therapeutic Goods Administration is quite complex in their, their approach to clinical decision support and it reflects similar regulatory agencies approaches overseas where they've essentially sort of said, well, clinical decision support software that is spitting out recommendations that clinicians make the ultimate decision about whether they follow or not. Those kinds of tools don't need to be fully regulated by us, so they're not listed on the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods. But neither are they entirely out of our remit. They fall into this kind of middle zone where they have to comply with certain essential principles that the agency sets. Um, But it's essentially kind of a self-regulatory scheme. So a company might fill out you know, yes, we've met these essential principles and put that document in a drawer and it never sees the light of day unless something goes wrong. They've done a lot of work lately to uh, issue new guidance for organisations um, who are developing these tools, you know, in recognition of the great flourishing of activity in this space at the moment. Um, but it's still, from from the point of view of small software companies who might just be focusing very um carefully on one particular aspect of, of product design in healthcare, um, it's, it's kind of a lot for them to get their head around. And I'm not convinced that every every entity that's making this kind of software is even aware that they might need to register with, the, or not register, but notify the TGA and, and comply with certain principles. Um, and finding one's way through the thicket of guidance is quite the task. So... You know, I really think it's good that the TGA is paying attention here. It's interesting for me to see how this is going to play out in the next couple of years, Um, particularly, as I said, the government now calling for clinicians to be using, to be required to use clinical decision support when they're ordering um, imaging tests. So, you know, I think we're going to see increasing focus in this area. so from the clinician's point of view, I think that they do need to be alive to the great upswelling of use of clinical decision support. And and there is potentially a legal risk, you know, if not now, then certainly looming that if they are not using these kinds of tools when all of their peers are, then they could be placing themselves at unnecessary legal risk. Um, and you know, a well-functioning clinical decision support system should actually help doctors acquit their legal duty of care to their patient. There's no question about that. So generally using them is a good thing. But I think clinicians using them and organisations such as hospitals and other health services that are purchasing them do need to be alive to things like what's the documentation that's coming along with them, what training is available in their use, um, how can we make sure that doctors are not being swamped by unnecessary alerts that's actually potentially increasing their risk of making an error. Um, What I suppose what are they requiring of the producer of these software in terms of standards and 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 um, accompanying information and things like a date stamp. So how current is the is the software, you know, when was it last updated, what specific guidelines is it drawing on? So what's in that black box um, being a, requiring a lot more evidence about how the software works? I think is probably something that needs to happen. It almost sounds like there's going
2: to be a new job, I reckon. So Sinead's Opinion 101. (laughs) Um, It sounds like, you know how we have ethical hacking um, as a a way to increase the security of like banking and, and online systems. It's almost like we should have someone employed by the clinic, by the hospital, whose job it is to rigorously test these systems, you know, like spot checking or not healthy. trying to break them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because if these, if these systems are actually going to dramatically increase the reliability of clinicians decisions and help them make more decisions more quickly, it seems like this could be a really interesting investment, but also a really interesting, like interlay between um, health degrees and also like IT sounds like something that um, we should get cracking on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The New future career process. path. Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
2: With that in mind, um, we have one last question for you. Um, what can the ordinary person do to help in this situation, or what should they know, or is there like, um, is there something clinicians should also be aware of?
1: yeah, so I think from from the ordinary person's point of view, patients are probably not even aware that their doctors are using these systems. Um, and I think there's very little that they can do to influence them. And some of my research has looked at you know if a patient is harmed and faulty software was kind of the initial point of that harm, initial cause of that harm, then you know, does the patient actually have a remedy against the software developer as well as the doctor? And, and it's, it's much more likely that the, the patient will still be able to claim primarily against the doctor. So um, really interesting and complex relationship in terms of legal liability. But anyhow, as a general rule, patients are not going to really know that this type of software is being used. Clinicians definitely need to know that clinical decision support software is not going away, um, that they should be encouraged to adopt systems that are, you know, high quality and robust and functioning well, and that um, can really help them save time and improve the quality of their care. However, they do need to be alive to the fact that it's just a tool, that it's not designed to replace their own clinical judgment and autonomy, that the recommendations that the software generates are not universally applicable. And there might be a very good reason why that recommendation should not be applied to the patient who's sitting in their clinic in front of them. So just, I suppose, A lot of, um, I think, attention by clinicians, by their employers and by governments and regulators needs to be paid to this space because, as I said, it's developing really quickly. There's a lot of software companies investing in these these tools and um, a lot of um, investments by hospitals and other health services in them as well.
2: Thank you. That is um really good advice. I didn't know my doctor was using a clinical decision support. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: should. You should. You should ask. What is the basis of that that uh, recommendation you've just made? So yeah,
2: I, I will do that from now on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that won't be annoying for the middle.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves a, lit- a litigious patient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Do you have any more questions?
0: I don't have any more questions. Um, just to say a massive thank you for talking with us today. It was so interesting to hear about your research and, actually, no, there's something I didn't know about really at all.
2: So, yeah, thank you very
0: much.
1: You're very much. welcome. Very welcome.
2: Thank you very much. And hopefully we look forward to more of your research coming out soon with some more of these answers and a new ethical hacking job <laughs> description. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Thanks. All right. See ya.